and from chapter 10. So we're looking as a start from Romans chapter 10, verse 16. And Carl's uh, presentation will be under the heading, God's plan for Israel. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice had gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgressions means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? And then we turn to verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. 
And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godless away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you were, you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how searchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that uh, you know all things. You know the end from the beginning. And Lord, we confess that your ways are unsearchable uh, and above us. Uh, And yet, Lord, we pray that you'd open our minds to understand uh, who you are and to understand your ways as best as we're able uh, so that we might with Paul, be able to praise and to honour and to glorify you. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'm guessing that for most of us, uh, most of the people who are here this morning, our top question for God is not, what's God's plan for the people of Israel? And most of us probably didn't wake up this morning wondering about that. Most of us probably weren't up in the middle of the night thinking about that. But that's the question that Paul has in this chapter here. Uh, And in these chapters 9 through 11 in the middle of uh, Romans, what's God's plan for the people of Israel? And it is actually, I think, a surprisingly important question. After all, there's no escaping the fact that Christianity is a Jewish religion. The Old Testament is largely about Jewish people and addressed in the first place to, to Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew who described his ministry as, first of all, to the Jews. So the question is, how do you and I fit into that, given that most of us, many of us, are not even remotely Jewish? But the question is important in another way too. Uh, It's important because the Old Testament shows that God has a special place and a plan for the people of Israel, and the question that we're left with is, has God's plan for them failed? And if God's plan for them has failed, then how can we trust God that he won't fail us too? That's exactly the question that Paul is wrestling with in Romans 9 to 11. Uh, He asks the question, is God reliable? What's God's plan for the people of Israel? And what's God's plan for the people outside Israel? So in this uh, section then, in Romans, uh, the end of Romans 10 and chapter 11, 
uh, Paul is continuing to reflect on that question, why haven't all the people of Israel been saved? God had chosen the descendants of Abraham as the people through whom he was going to bring blessing to the world, but many of them had not received Jesus and put their trust in him. So God had chosen them, but many of the people of Israel hadn't put their trust in Jesus. Last week, uh, we saw that the problem was that they had misunderstood the Old Testament law. And they had thought, in misunderstanding the law, they had thought that they were supposed to earn God's favour through being really good people. But Paul showed in in chapter 10 that the way to God is not through earning his favour in what you do, but by receiving the gift that God offers us in his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul finished that section by saying, if that's the good news, that we're saved by receiving a gift rather than by trying to earn our salvation, if that's the good news, then we ought to tell people about that. They have to hear about that so that they can receive Jesus uh, and be saved. But now Paul begins this uh, section by asking a whole lot of questions. He asks six or seven questions throughout Uh, these verses and the first question that he asks in verse 18 then is this didn't Israel hear the gospel here's the good news we need to get the good news out so that people can hear it and then Paul suddenly stops and says but hang on hasn't Israel heard they've heard the gospel they've heard about who Jesus is didn't they hear the gospel yes they did says Paul so then hearing can't be the problem He asked in verse 19, well, didn't they understand? And he says, no, they didn't understand. Lots of other people understood. He says in verse 20, Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask me. There were lots of people who weren't even looking for God who found him in Jesus. But God's own people, the people of Israel, They'd heard the message, God kept telling them the message, God kept holding out his hands to welcome them and to receive them, but they just kept ignoring him and and rejecting him. So verse 21, uh, God says, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It's sobering, I think, to realise that the problem with Israel was not that they'd never heard the gospel. They had heard the gospel. They'd heard the gospel over and over again. And, and they'd heard uh, that the good news was that God's saviour was Jesus Christ. He'd come in the flesh. God had come in the flesh to, to rescue a people for himself. They'd heard about Jesus. But many people had rejected that message. God was, was holding out his hands. He continued to hold out his hands to people in mercy. But they continued to be disobedient and stubborn. You see, it's sobering, I think, to realise that the problem is not just that people need to hear the gospel. Yeah, we need to, we heard last week that we need to, we're on a mission that God's invited us to be part of, to share the gospel with with the people who haven't heard it, people in Launceston, people around the world, all these people who've not heard the gospel. We've got to get that message out. But the problem is not just hearing the message. The problem is understanding and receiving it and actually entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ. So you might have heard the gospel loads of times. You might have heard the gospel from when you were growing up. You might have 
been coming to church and hearing the gospel for 20 or 30 years. You might have gone to Christianity Explored. But we need to not just hear the gospel, we need to receive Jesus. Because if we just hear the gospel without receiving Jesus, then it's all for nothing. We haven't understood. There's lots of ways that you can hear and reject the gospel. Uh, You can reject the gospel, you can reject Jesus by uh, just flat out denying that he is who he claims to be, that he's the son of God coming to the world to save sinners. Uh, You can reject Jesus by continuing to live in ways that reject his rule over your life. He's God's appointed king and you can live in a way which just completely denies that. You might kind of say that you believe that but your life tells a different story. Uh, Or you can reject Jesus by rejecting what he's done for you on the cross. That is, you can reject Jesus by believing and living as though you need to earn your way to God. Paul shows us here, in terms of the people of Israel, that it's not, the key thing is not just hearing the gospel, but receiving it. You can't just think that because you've heard the gospel lots of, time, that you're, lots of times that you're all good with, with, with God. Because it's not hearing that matters, but it's actually receiving and entrusting yourself to Jesus. Well, Paul goes on to ask then, well, if Israel's heard the gospel and if Israel has not understood the gospel, but others have, does that mean that God has rejected his people? His people that he made promises to, the people of Israel. Paul asks in in chapter 11, verse 1, did God reject his people? And Paul says, no. Paul himself is an Israelite. He's living proof that God hasn't rejected his people. Paul's heard the gospel. Paul's received the gospel. Paul's put his faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is living proof that God hasn't rejected his people. And then in verses 2 to 4, Paul goes on to then give another example. He gives the example of Elijah. He says, in the days of Elijah, Elijah thought that he was the only one left, that there was no one else in all of Israel who was faithful. Uh, But Paul quotes Elijah in verse 3. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. There's no one else. Elijah's looking around and thinking everyone's faithless. Everyone's ignorant. uh, Everyone's abandoned God. But God says to Elijah, no, you're not the only one. In fact, there's 7,000 other people. Although it looked and felt like he was the only one, God says there's lots of other people. It's still not a whole nation, but there are loads of people who still uh, trust in God. And Paul says that in the same way, as in the days of Elijah, there was this remnant within the nation who still trusted God. Paul says that in the same way, God still has a remnant, a small group within the nation, within the people of Israel, who, who trust in God. And that remnant is chosen not on the basis of anything that they've done, not on the basis of any faith that God had foreseen, but they're chosen purely out of God's grace. That is, they're chosen out of his unmerited goodness. So verse 5, so too, Paul says, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it can't be based on works. If it were grace, uh, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. Grace must be unmerited. It must be a gift. It can't be based on something that we have achieved. That's not a gift. 
So Paul says in verse 7, he asks his next question, what then? That is, what are we to make of all that? There's still a remnant within the people of Israel. What are we to make of that? His answer is that although some within Israel didn't understand, uh, there were some within Israel who did. And although lots of people uh, were seeking God, only those chosen out of God's grace actually understood and received the gospel. So we saw last week there were lots of people within Israel who were trying to know God, but they completely misunderstood. But still, there was a remnant who heard the gospel, believed the gospel and received the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, while those people uh, found God's grace, the others were hardened in their rejection of God. Verse 7, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. They were seeking for it, but they didn't find it. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. So here Paul joins together the perspectives of chapter 8 and chapter 9. So in chapter 9, Paul said that the reason not everyone from Israel who Uh, who heard the gospel believed, the reason they didn't all believe is somehow mysteriously part of God's plan and purpose. God was doing something beyond uh, our ability to to completely understand. That was God's plan, that not everyone who heard the gospel would believe. Then in chapter 10, Paul says that the reason from the human perspective that people didn't believe the gospel was because they misunderstood the gospel. They misunderstood what the law was saying. They thought that they had to earn their way to God. And Paul in this chapter is joining those two perspectives. He's saying God was at work doing something. God had a plan and purpose. The people were responsible. They misunderstood. And Paul is now joining those two things together and showing how one thing stands behind the other, how their misunderstanding of of the gospel, behind that stands the great plan and purpose of God. Paul says that God hardened their hearts, just like he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. That, if you like, is the primary cause. God was doing something. They didn't receive the gospel because that was God's plan. And yet, at the same time, we can't overlook the fact that the people themselves were stubbornly opposed to God. That is, they didn't understand because that was God's plan and purpose, but they also didn't understand because they didn't want to. They didn't want to understand the gospel. God says that he held out his hands to them all day long, but they refused. It was God's plan and purpose that they wouldn't believe, but they were also willing participants. You get a bit of an idea of how that works back in chapter 1 of Romans. There you get this repeated phrase that God gave them over. God gave the people over to the desires of their hearts. They knew God, they could see the evidence of God's fingerprints all over the world, but they refused to acknowledge God, they refused to give him the regard that was due to him, and instead people plunged themselves into the things that were against God and that were against God's plan and pattern for the world. And eventually, God gave them over to that. God gave them what they wanted. People went in that direction and God gave them over. And the result was that their hearts were darkened even more. The problem is, I think, that we tend to assume, perhaps, that 
neutral vessels. And so we assume that when God hardens people, he must be actively intervening to make them sinful. But that's not the case. We're naturally sinful people, and when God withdraws his restraining hand, we plunge ourselves by our own choice into willful obstinance. I don't know if you know anything about submarines. I used to have a great passion for submarines, but submarines rely on something called neutral buoyancy. Neutral buoyancy means that if a submarine stops in the middle of the water, it will just sit there under the water. It's neutrally buoyant, so it won't go up or down. They have these great big ballast tanks on the outside of the pressure hull that fill up with water and air, and they, and they manage the amount of water and air in those tanks so that they're neutrally buoyant. And we think of ourselves like that. In terms of sin, we think of ourselves as neutrally buoyant. And we can just make a decision to go up or down. We can sort of go up towards God or we can go down towards sin. But that's not what we're like. We're like a submarine whose ballast tanks are full of of all the water that they can fit in, who are plummeting down towards the bottom of the ocean. And we can't steer ourselves back out. We're on our way down. And Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, we're already heading down in that direction. We're already heading as fast as we can towards sin, and God gives people over to that more and more, so that they just nosedive more and more towards destruction. We think of ourselves as neutrally buoyant, but we're not. We're sinful people who are heading towards sin, and, 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 and sometimes God gets to a point where he just keeps giving people over to that. It's only if the grace of God intervenes in our lives positively to stop us, to stop us going on that trajectory and to lift us up towards him that we can have any hope. It's only by the grace of God. In other words, it's our fault. Although it's God's plan and purpose, God's plan and purpose stands behind the salvation of all people all those who are saved, we're responsible. And none of us can ever say, well, God, you can't blame me because, because you, didn't, you didn't pick me. No, we're responsible before God. If we're plummeting towards the depths of the ocean because in sin, it's because of our choice, our willful obstinance. God holds out his hands all day long, but if you reject Christ, you're stubborn and hard-hearted. It's your fault. You can't blame God. God. God is just giving you what you want, giving you over to sin, hardening your heart, giving you exactly what you're already pursuing. And the only way out of that quandary is by the sheer grace of God that stops us heading down that, that path and, and, and lifts us up to the surface. So God's plan for Israel hasn't failed. God has kept this remnant for himself. He's kept a remnant, but he's hardened the hearts of other people according to his great plan and purpose. But why? Why has he done that? Why has God hardened some people within Israel to the gospel? What what, what was the purpose of that? And that's really the question that Paul seeks to answer in the rest of chapter 11. He's already tried to answer that uh, given some, some comments about that at the end of chapter 9. But now in chapter 11, he, he answers that question, I think, in, in a more direct way. 
Uh, so he says in verse 11, his next question, did they stumble, did the people of Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? That is, was God's purpose in hardening some people within in Israel in order to keep them from the gospel entirely, that is, in, in order to keep Israel from the gospel entirely? And Paul's answer is no. He says that God's reason for hardening uh, some within Israel was not to cut them off completely, but in order that others might be saved, in, a, in order that many more might be saved. In, in the first place, Israel's hardness of heart has led to many from outside Israel coming to faith. Many people from outside Israel have been saved because of their hardness of heart. So you see that in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul goes to a synagogue uh, you know, in, a, in a particular town. Uh, he goes there, he preaches the gospel. People hear the gospel, some receive it, but many reject it. He's driven out of the synagogue, uh, and so he goes and preaches in the open places. He goes and preaches to whoever will hear the gospel. And the people who hear it receive it with great joy. Because of the hardness of heart of, of that group of people, many have heard the gospel. And so Paul says, in the first place, then, God has given some within Israel over to, over to to rejection in order that the gospel might be heard the gospel might go to the world but in the second place paul says the salvation of many outside israel is intended by god to make israel jealous so that they will also want to hear the gospel and receive the gospel paul explains in verse 11 he says again i asked did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery not at all rather because of their transgression salvation has come to the gentiles in order to make israel envious so god was hardening them so that the gospel might go out but also ultimately so that they might be saved as well in verse 25 paul goes on to explain that apparent mystery he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Part of God's plan is that through the rejection of Jesus by some within Israel, the gospel will go out to others, and it has. We can see that across the world. Many who are not Jewish have come uh, to know God. The church, in fact, is made up predominantly of people who have no relationship to the people of Israel by birth. Millions of people have been saved. God's plan is that many might be saved. God's plan is being worked out. And yet that doesn't mean that God has forgotten his people. The full number of the Gentiles coming in, Paul says, will open up a way for the return of many within Israel. So verse 28 as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they're love on account of the patri- loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so too have uh, so they too have now become disobedient, in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy uh, on them all. Paul says that God won't forget the special place that he's given to Israel within his plans. God chose them for his own purposes to be the ones through whom his son would be born into the world. They had front row seats to the gospel and they won't be totally abandoned by God. 
Although many might presently be opposed to the gospel, God hasn't forgotten his promises to the nation as a whole. And the day will come, Paul says, when many from Israel will turn to God. It's worth noting, I think, that when Paul says all Israel will save, be saved, it's clear that he doesn't mean every single person within Israel will be saved, but all that God intends within Israel will be saved. God still has this plan and purpose for the nation that he worked through in the Old uh, Testament. And you might think, great, okay. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. What's the point of that? What does that mean for us? Well, actually, Paul tells us exactly what that means for us. You know, sometimes as a pastor, you sort of sit down, you rack your brain trying to, what on earth is the application? But actually, Paul gives the application here in this passage because he's writing to people like us. He's writing to people who are not in any way Jewish. And he wants them to know about He wants them to know about this. He wants them to know about God's plan for Israel. And he tells us exactly why that is. So in the first place, he says in verse 20, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. In the verses in the middle of the chapter that we didn't read, Paul explains that God's community is like an olive tree. Israel was part of the olive tree. There were branches, individuals within that, uh, in the nation were, were branches of that olive tree. But many of those natural branches have been broken off from that tree because of their unbelief. They've been broken off and they've been discarded. But many from outside Israel, what Paul calls wild olive branches, those wild olive branches have been grafted into this olive tree, God's salvation plan. But here's the thing, Paul says, if natural branches can be cut off that tree and thrown away, if branches that belong to that tree can be cut off and and thrown away, then how much more can branches that have been grafted in They were broken off because of their unbelief. You were joined to the tree by faith. But Paul says, but if you don't continue in that faith, you'll be broken off as well. You'll be discarded. Paul wants us, there's a a warning here. Paul says, don't be arrogant, but tremble. They were broken off, you can be broken off too. You and I cannot think to ourselves, I've come to know Jesus Now I can just relax. I've come to know Jesus. Now I can just take life easy. You see, so much of the New Testament is filled with encouragements and warnings about making it to the end. The writer of Hebrews says, we've come to share in Christ if we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. We've come to Share in Christ if we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. If we don't hold our conviction to the very end, we haven't come to share in Christ. It's only if we persevere. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is a warning not to fall away. Don't drift away. Don't go on sinning. Don't give up your confidence in Christ. Don't sell the gospel for the, for the pleasures of this world. 
Uh, as someone I heard recently pointed out, the Bible never tells us to relax. It tells us to rest and trust in Christ, but it never tells us to relax. It tells us to remain vigilant, to watch and wait, and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says, don't be arrogant, but tremble. If you think that you can never fall away, if you've become complacent, if you think you can just drift along for the next few years, you're badly mistaken. Don't think that God won't cut you off if you abandon him and if you abandon the gospel. And as the New Testament so often warns, we can not only abandon the gospel by becoming an atheist, very few people will abandon the gospel by leaving the church and publicly denouncing Christ. That happens. But by far and away, the most common thing is for people to abandon the gospel and to stay within the church. As Jesus says, those people for whom the worries and cares of this world choke the fruitfulness of the gospel. Don't think that you can remain indifferent to the gospel and that will be okay. God will cut you off and he will graft in others in your place. He did it to Israel. And he can do it to you as well. And let me say that I find this a deeply, deeply concerning thing. I've spoken before about the concern that we have in the church as a church leadership about the way that people make use of the means of grace, of church attendance and things like growth groups and, and, and the kind of disinterest that people have in, the, in gathering together and being built up by the word of God and encouraged in prayer and, and, and spurred on by the love and faith of others, being challenged by the love and faith of others. The indifference that people seem to have towards that. And what concerns me is that our society is heading towards one of the darkest, most difficult times in our, in our recent history. It's becoming increasingly difficult for people to remain faithful and diligent Christians. We're heading towards a great precipice. Our, our allegiance to Christ will be sorely tested and we need to equip ourselves for that day. We need to meet together so that we can be deeply anchored in the truth. We need to meet together so that we can be part of a living and active community who can encourage each other to persevere as the pressure comes on us to abandon Jesus Christ. What we do together here and at other times during the week is one of the most important things that you can do in your life. And it's getting squeezed out by sport and work and the busyness of life and the long-term effect of that will be catastrophic. And that's not just my view, it's the Bible's view. Here's the writer of Hebrews again. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Or again, 
and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We're sleepwalking towards disaster. Our apathy and and indifference are leaving us at risk of catastrophe and I have no hope, I frankly have no hope that when the day comes for us to test our perseverance and diligence to Christ, I have very little hope based on what I see at the moment that we will persevere. Let me be blunt. I know that many of us will. But let me be blunt. I fear that many of us won't. It's our responsibility to deal with that. Because Paul says, don't be arrogant. God did it to Israel. He cut them off. And he can cut you off too. So Paul says, don't be arrogant. And in the second place, he says, don't be conceited. Don't think that because God has cut them off that he has no love for them anymore. Paul says in verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Don't think that God's love is all for you and for no one else. Don't think because, that because he has used them in some special way in his plan that he's, that he's brought his love to you. Don't think that he doesn't love them anymore. We might think to ourselves that we're so special that the gospel has come to us, that God has forgotten about Israel. But Paul says God still has a plan for Israel. And God plans to bring many back to himself. Just because they are cut off as a people doesn't mean that they can't come back in. In fact, there almost seems to be something special about Israel coming back in. Paul says in verse 12, but if their transgressions mean riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their inclusion bring? There's something special, something extraordinary, something wonderful that will come from a work of God to bring many in Israel back to himself. It needs to be said, I think, that God's plan is not for the nation state of Israel to be re-established. God's plan is for them to be saved. Some Christians got really excited in 1948 when Israel was formed again as a nation after the Second World War. They saw it as a great act of God. And I guess God being sovereign, it was an act of God. But God's interest here is not in a nation state being formed, but in people bowing the knee to his son, Jesus Christ. And what has happened actually with the formation of Israel is exactly the opposite of what God desires. In fact, what's happened ostensibly through the formation of the nation of Israel is that people have been more hardened in their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've become more arrogantly independent of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, Paul says, God has a great salvation work among the people of Israel in store and somehow and sometime that will take place. You and I might find that a bit odd. We might find that a bit uh, out of place, actually, that God has a special plan for Israel. Uh, It might seem to us a bit unfair that God should favour one group above another. But God has made promises and God is God. He can do what he likes. He's made a historic commitment to the descendants of Israel and God means to honour that in some way. 
And so if God longs for many within that nation, within that people group to, uh, to come to him, then we should long for that too. We should pray for it. We should pray that God would show love to the people who are descended from Abraham. We should pray that God would shower them with the blessings that he's showered on us. We should pray that the people through whom he chose to, 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 to bring about the Messiah, that they would actually receive the Messiah that was sent for them. Well, Paul has dealt with some pretty heavy theology, I think, over this chapter and particularly over the last chapters as well. But at the end of this chapter, he does, I think, the only thing that we can do uh, in a situation like this. When there's so much that we don't understand, when there's so much which puzzles us, there's so much beyond our comprehension. The only thing that we can really do is praise God. He says in verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Notice what it is that Paul delights in, in God. It's incomprehensibility. It is the fact that God's ways are so far above our ways. It's the fact that God knows more than we do, that God is wiser than we are. It's the fact that everything begins with God and ends with God. Everything is from God, not us. Everything is through God, not us. Everything is for God, not us. Having worked through some of this stuff in the last few chapters and about God's sovereignty and power and, the, and plan and his place for Israel, you might be absolutely confused about what God's plan and purpose really is. Or why, more particularly, why that's God's plan and purpose. And maybe you're actually a little bit bitter. Why should God work like that? Maybe you resent the fact that God's in control. You might resent the, God, the fact that God has a place for Israel. But that's not what Paul does. He celebrates it. He marvels at the depths of God's wisdom and justice. Now, I think for many people in our world, we're so used to understanding everything. Our expectation is that we can understand. And if we can't understand something, that makes, it less, that, makes that thing less. So the fact that we can't understand God means for many people that God is somehow lesser. But actually, Paul thinks about it the other way around. It's because he can't understand God that that makes him love God all the more. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and wisdom. And Lord, we find it utterly unfathomable why you should show grace to one and not another, why you should work in this way and not another, why you should have shown mercy to us and not another. But Lord, you have, and we're left dumbfounded and awestruck. Lord, help us to not just hear the gospel, but to understand it and to receive it. And though we might not understand you, we pray that we would understand the good news and cling on to it with all our might and to marvel at your goodness and your unsearchable ways and your extraordinary power and grace. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.